Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. It was a sordid affair. Michael was in a relationship with Gerald's wife, and he was the father of her child. But when the baby was born, Gerald was listed as the father on the birth certificate. Gerald's wife, Carol, continued bouncing between Gerald and Michael, and indeed another man too. And for a time, she and Michael lived together along with the child that DNA tests proved was Michael's own biological child. But in the end, Carol reconciled with her husband, Gerald. She settled down exclusively with him. She wouldn't allow Michael to see his child. And when that happened, Michael sued for visitation rights. And the case of Michael H. versus Gerald D. went all the way to the Supreme Court in 1989. Michael's claim was that he had a constitutional right to see his child. That claim was rooted in the court's substantive due process jurisprudence, long line of cases recognizing the rights of parents over the care and education of their children as an aspect of liberty that should not be arbitrarily or unjustifiably deprived. Arbitrary or capricious deprivations of liberty, according to these cases, didn't satisfy the due process of law. But how do we know which aspects of liberty are protected by the due process clause? We've looked at some cases in which the court has offered expansive understandings of personal liberty, invalidated laws against contraception, abortion, and consensual sexual acts between adults. That line of cases led to a Burgefell v. Hodges in 2015, recognizing a federal constitutional right to marry that could not be denied based on the sex of the marriage partners. But in another line of cases, moving on a parallel track, the court has sought to limit judicial discretion in filling out the contours of that constitutional liberty by tethering judicial interpretation to our country's history and traditions. Going back to the case of Palco versus Connecticut and some of the other incorporation cases we've looked at, the court has emphasized those liberties that are fundamental— and fundamental here because they've been held to be so by our traditions. They are, as Palco put it, so rooted in the traditions and conscience of our people as to be ranked as fundamental. Michael H. versus Gerald D. is one such case. Marriage law traditionally had recognized the man who was married to a woman as the father of any children born to that woman. So when Carol gave birth, Gerald was by law the child's father. Michael had no legal claim in California law to the visitation rights that might be granted to a father, a recognized legal father, even though the DNA tests showed that he was, in fact, the biological, if not the legal, father of Carol's child. What should the court do here? According to Justice Scalia, who wrote the majority opinion, the court should do nothing. This is a matter for California law. There's no legitimate 14th Amendment claim to be made here, he thought. And the reason why is because visitation rights for a man in Michael's situation is not a right deeply rooted in our nation's traditions and history. In fact, quite the opposite. And so, divided court upheld the California law, declined to announce any kind of 14th Amendment liberty. But four members of the court dissented, and the case highlights the disagreements on the court about just how to approach and to interpret the 14th Amendment. In the majority opinion, Scalia said this, In an attempt to limit and guide interpretation of the clause, we have insisted not merely that the interest denominated as a liberty be fundamental, a concept, he says, that in isolation is hard to objectify, 
but also that it be an interest traditionally protected by our society. As we have put it, the Due Process Clause affords only those protections so rooted in the traditions and conscience of our people as to be ranked as fundamental. Our cases reflect continual insistence upon respect for the teachings of history and a solid recognition of the basic values that underlie our society. And so Scalia goes on to say, the legal issue in the present case reduces to whether the relationship between persons and the situation of Michael and Victoria, Victoria being the child here, has been treated as a protected family unit under the historic practices of our society, or whether on any other basis it has been accorded special protection, and we think it's impossible to find that it has. And in fact, Scalia says, the claim that a state must recognize multiple fatherhood has no support in the history and traditions of this country. Note, though, that a state may recognize multiple fathers or mothers if it chooses. Nothing in the Constitution prevents that, and California has since chosen to do just that. In 2013, California Governor Jerry Brown signed a law that allows a child to have more than two legally recognized parents. Traditions change. An interesting question, though, at what point does that new tradition become deeply rooted for the purposes of constitutional law? The dissenting opinion, however, wouldn't have made such a fuss about tradition in the first place. Justice Brennan in dissent wrote, The document that Justice Scalia's opinion construes today is unfamiliar to me. It is not the living charter that I've taken to be our Constitution. It is instead a stagnant, archaic, hidebound document steeped in the prejudices and superstitions of a time long past. This constitution does not recognize that times change, does not see that sometimes a practice or rule outlives the foundations. I cannot accept an interpretive method that does such violence to the charter that I am bound by oath to uphold. And so, as Brennan understands his role, the judges must be open to new understandings and interpretations of constitutional liberty as society changes. The constitution, he says, is a living charter. One question that emerges from Brennan's living constitution, a constitution Scalia once jokingly said he wished would die, is a question not just about liberty, but about who is restrained from depriving you of your liberty. The text of the 14th Amendment itself says, No state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. What if your neighbor deprives you of your life, liberty, or property, or private school, or private business? They may have violated a law, but they haven't violated the 14th Amendment, at least not according to the traditional way of reading that text. According to the state action doctrine, the 14th Amendment comes into play only when the state has acted, when the state does the depriving. It has to do with government deprivations, and private wrongs are just that. They're private. This doctrine was the subject of a separate dispute, the Supreme Court, in 1989, the same year as Michael H. versus Gerald D., the case about the state action doctrine was DeShaney versus Winnebago County Department of Social Services. John Finn, one of the authors of the casebook we're using for class, gave an address to the students at Wesleyan University some years back, and speakers in this series were asked to talk about something that keeps them up at night, and Finn chose to talk about this case and about the state action doctrine. Listen here. So now I'm left with a topic, actually, that, that brings me to tears. Um, I want to I talk about um, Joshua DeShaney. Joshua DeShaney uh, was born in 1979 to a very young couple, to a couple uh, known as Melody and Randy DeShaney, who divorced within a year or two years of the marriage, having produced really only tons of tears, tons of fights, uh, physical abuse, and the poor boy Joshua. 
They got a divorce shortly after Joshua was born. Melody tried to take care of Joshua, decided that she really wasn't mature enough to do so, and signed over custody of Joshua to her husband, Randy, who had meanwhile moved uh, to Winnebago County in Wisconsin and had remarried. Uh, within two years, uh, by the time Joshua was two and a half or three years old, in other words, uh, Joshua had lived a life that none of us could possibly want. Joshua lived a life um, that, according to figures in 2009, well over 3.3 million children live every year, lives of terrible, horrifying, tragic abuse. Joshua was first admitted in 1982 to a local emergency room brought in by his aunt, where the tending physicians found that he had injuries pretty much on every part of the lower extremity of his body, including his buttocks and his penis, indentations around his genital area, for example, which suggested strongly that he had been hit and attacked repeatedly with uh, combs and other kinds of things. Uh, but perhaps most horrifying um, were the brain-related injuries. Joshua was actually removed from his father's custody for a very short period of time while county authorities did a quick investigation and he was later remanded back to his father's custody along with continued visits over the next two years. And the, to their credit, Winnebago County authorities did continually investigate Joshua and his family living arrangement. They went to the house at least four times over the next two years. Sadly, on two of those occasions, the social worker was told that she couldn't see Joshua once because he was feeling ill, another time because he had the flu. Um, finally, Joshua, as you can probably predict, um, was admitted to the hospital one more time. Uh, the last time he was admitted to the hospital, he was permanently removed from his father's custody, but by then, the extent of the damage was so horrific that Joshua was remanded to um, a state institution where he is now and will be for the rest of his life. Over one half of his brain was simply physically destroyed. He has little, if any, cognitive function to this day. Melody DeShaney, his mother, um, apparently was unaware of the living conditions of Joshua, but of course found out soon enough. And upon hearing it, decided to sue uh, the state of Wisconsin. Now, she might have sued Randy DeShaney, the husband, but there are good reasons not to bother. Uh, the biggest reason, um, the most obvious reason not to sue Randy DeShaney is he has no money. There is little that can be accomplished by suing Randy DeShaney other than whatever moral sanction you might get out of it. If you're interested in what happened to Randy, he entered what lawyers known as an Alford plea, which means he did not contest the charges. He was sentenced to a maximum of four years in jail and he served just over two years of prison time. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, he hasn't been in trouble since. He did, however, win the Wisconsin State Lottery. Uh, not for a lot of money, but the idea that he would win any money at all strikes me as profoundly unjust in ways I can't even describe. Now, here's why I wanted to talk about Joshua. And I thought about not mentioning him by name, but I thought it was important to put a face on it. Why did I think about not mentioning him by name? Because I'm afraid that much of what I have to say only uses Joshua as a prop. And if you want to say that I, too, have contributed to Joshua's abuse, I think I'm going to take the Alford plea to that, just like Randy did. But nevertheless, here's what I want to say. When Melody sued the state of Wisconsin, she argued that it was the state of Wisconsin, at least as much as Randy DeShaney, the father, who was responsible for her child's abuse. Her argument was that the state knew Joshua was at risk from his father, and it was her further argument that the state could have and should have done more to protect Joshua from the violence that was perpetrated on him. 
she made essentially what lawyers would call two different kinds of arguments. And I want to explore one at some length, so I'll get rid of the other one now. The first argument she made is known to lawyers as the positive liberty argument. She argued that the state of Wisconsin had violated Joshua's right to due process of law. And apparently the argument runs something like this. The 14th Amendment says, no state shall deny to any person due process of law. And the argument here was that the state is obligated to protect those who it knows are in danger. And its failure to protect Joshua was a violation of his positive liberty claim to be protected from violence. The state, I'm sorry, the court had absolutely no difficulty in dismissing that argument almost out of hand. It would take us a long way to go down the road and I haven't got the time or the inclination to do it. Trust me when I tell you that the Supreme Court has never ever held that Americans have a positive liberty claim to anything and it is unlikely that it will ever do so in the near future, particularly with this court. That's not really what I want to talk about. Joshua's claim failed for yet another reason, and it's one that I want to spend a little bit of time on here. It's called the state action doctrine. The argument goes back again to the very language of the 14th Amendment, and its key words, its key opening words are, no state shall. And there, according to Chief Justice Rehnquist, a majority of the court was the biggest impediment to Joshua's lawsuit. The state hadn't harmed Joshua, the argument ran. Private actors had harmed Joshua the private actor being his father. The state action doctrine holds that constitutional rights and liberties may only be violated by state actors. Think state in the grand sense that Richie mentioned it, think of it in the small sense of school teachers, but it has to be a state employee. And the argument here was only Joshua's father had harmed him, the state had nothing to do with it. The state action doctrine has been described by one great scholar as, and here's why I have one of my notes, as a torchless search for a way out of a damp, echoing cave. Which is, I think, a nice way of summarizing the basic point, which is that the state action doctrine is incoherent as a matter of law, but that's not really why I want to challenge it. Think about this for a minute. We could challenge it, right? We could all say, of course the state harmed Joshua. They knew he was in danger. They actually removed him from his father's custody, and they still, in the end, did nothing. We could argue, if we wanted to, that there was state action, and a majority of the court disagreed. A minority of the court, Justice Brennan in particular, did agree. Lawyers have these arguments all the time. I have this argument in my constitutional law course all the time. Was there state action? Here's what keeps me up at night. Who the bleep cares if there was state action? I want to propose a constitutional revolution. I want to suggest now that we should junk the state action doctrine altogether. The practical effect of that would be to make the Constitution applicable not only to state actors, but to all private actors as well. Did you catch the terms of debate here? The state action doctrine is the standard approach to interpreting the 14th Amendment. We might debate whether, in fact, the state acted, but that's the crucial question. Did the state act, and in what way? And is state inaction enough to trigger the state action doctrine? By not acting, has the state, in fact, done something? But Finn proposes a revolution in constitutional law, the application of the Constitution to private actors, private spaces. That's just what he said it was, though, a kind of thought experiment or a proposal, a revolution that we could think about, something political theorists love to do, but not something that's part of the Supreme Court's actual approach to constitutional law. And so that remains an important limitation on the liberty interest protected by the 14th Amendment, at least as interpreted by the Supreme Court of the United States. 
Almost a decade later, after Gerald H. and Michael D. and after the DeShaney case, the court summarized its emphasis on history and tradition in its substantive due process jurisprudence. The case where it did that was Washington v. Glucksburg in 1997. The issue was whether the 14th Amendment protects the right of a gravely ill patient to seek the assistance of a physician in ending their own life, whether that physician has a constitutional right in assisting in that patient's death. The Supreme Court said no. The deeply rooted traditions of this country, the court held, do not support this interpretation of liberty. There is no right to physician-assisted suicide. And Chief Justice Rehnquist explains. The respondent's constitutional claim, it is established that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment provides heightened protection for certain fundamental rights, such as the right to marry, to have children, to refuse unwanted medical treatment. Out of respect for the democratic process and to prevent judges from overreaching in this often difficult area, we have repeatedly emphasized that fundamental rights are those that are deeply rooted in our nation's traditions. We have also insisted that the fundamental right at issue in a particular due process case be framed rather precisely. Thus, the issue before us today is not the broad question of whether there's a constitutional right to determine the time and manner of one's death, but instead whether the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause includes the right to commit physician-assisted suicide. To hold for respondents, we would have to reverse centuries of legal doctrine and practice and strike down the considered policy choice of almost every state. Respondents' argument is supported neither by tradition nor by our Casey and Cruzan decisions. <laughs> we therefore conclude that the, assisted, uh, uh, that the asserted right to assistance in committed, committing suicide is not a fundamental liberty interest protected by the Due Process Clause. Today, Glucksburg remains good law, so does DeShaney. Both remain contested and controversial, of course, and both help us understand a kind of conservative approach to 14th Amendment jurisprudence. Only those fundamental rights deeply rooted in our history and traditions are protected, and they're protected by the 14th Amendment only from deprivation by the state. But alongside those decisions, we've also seen broader and more expansive and less historically determined interpretations of liberty under the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. It's an ongoing dynamic that continues to structure debates about the source and scope of our constitutional liberty.